Welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we welcome you to the final episode of Season 5 of the podcast. Hope you've enjoyed hearing the stories of different members of the Notre Dame family as they find their vocations, seek after holiness, and just share their stories with us throughout the podcast. So I'm pleased to welcome as our final guest, Father Kevin Grove. Father Kevin is a 2009 graduate with his Master's of Divinity from the university and now teaches here in the theology department and has a rich background with the university in a couple different contexts. So Father Kevin, welcome to the podcast. It's really nice to be with you here, Dan. Thanks so much. We'd like to start with your early years. Where are you from, and what were some of the highlights of those early years? Yeah, thank you. So I grew up in the very middle of the state of Montana, six miles outside of a little town called Hobson. And for those of you who are thinking, where is that? If you looked at a map of the state of Montana and just pointed to the middle, it's roughly right there. Hobson has around 200 people. It's a little farming and agriculture town. And my uh, parents have a family-owned and operated farm and ranch just outside of that town. So dryland wheat and barley um, for hard winter wheat for bread and barley for malting, Angus beef cattle and sheep. And so it was a wonderful place to grow up. The sort of place where I went to school with the same 11 kids from kindergarten through 12th grade. I could probably still tell you their middle names and their birthdays. Um, But also grew up surrounded by, and this is probably the important part for my vocation, um, surrounded by one, agricultural images that made scripture come alive. Sure. So grains of wheat that fell to the ground and died were as real as the things that I was driving around in a harvest truck. And, you know, I've also forever been um, sort of taunted by the way in which the psalmist says that we're the sheep of the flock. Um, After having actually encountered sheep, I'm not quite sure what the compliment (laughs) is there. Um, It certainly establishes our dependence on God to survive. But also a great model of community in in rural America and places like that. People really have to depend upon one another in tough times to make it through. And in little communities, I learned that value, I think, very early on. And so in those two ways, growing up in Montana really shaped, at least um, sort of implicitly, a lot of the values of holiness that I saw. Um, My family is Catholic. We've gone to the same little parish church. There's a Catholic church and a Methodist church in Hobson, Montana. There are two options. And have always been part of that little Sacred Heart Church, and my family still goes there to this day. I have two siblings, uh, both younger, who are now married, and so I have nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. And they and their spouses made the career decisions to move back to the farm um, in order that they might raise their children in a little town. Um, And so there's a deep sort of personal and spiritual connection to that place. But Everyday Holiness, uh, they are linked in a unique way to the land, to farming, and to small community life. That's great to hear and not the background that you hear from a lot of people these days how was education formative in your life in that in that context I mean, it became a, a emergent as a priority for my parents that their children should have the opportunity to receive a college education and so that you know was was a push from early uh, early on in my years and uh, even though we were in a small town um, I was blessed by very good teachers there mm-hmm. um, and in, in a very special way will always be grateful for the education that I received in that small place I did my own undergraduate studies at a Jesuit school called Seattle University 
in part, you know, of the of it was close to home of the universities that I sure. applied to. I had family in Seattle, and I was able to take part in a great books program there that really gave me unique and personal mentoring, um, and especially the value of a liberal arts education. And so, four years in Seattle as an undergraduate, and then I joined the Congregation of Holy Cross right out of undergraduate mm-hmm. after after Seattle U. Okay, now. When you were young, when did you first think maybe God is calling me to be a priest? And what was your own reaction to that revelation? It's a great question. I think the important image is that, you know, faith was just a natural part of life on the farm. I mean, I remember as a little boy riding with my dad on the combine Mm -hmm. and along with listening to the egg radio and, you know, stopping for lunch and everything else, there was a rosary at some part of the day, right? You know, my family prayed together at night. And so I remember in high school, my grandfather, who, God rest his soul, now passed on as my confirmation sponsor. Mm -hmm. I remember the moment of my confirmation, him standing with his sort of like rough and rugged farmer's hand on my shoulder. He himself was a convert to the faith and standing there um, praying for the gifts of the Holy Spirit and thinking that evening that, you know, there's a real grace here and perhaps there's a call to priesthood that I should think about. I pretty much shelved it after that yeah. um, because <laughs> it, was, it was not cool, um, at least in my own estimation. And, of course, halfway through college, uh, the abuse crisis broke out in earnest in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the thoughts of priesthood in some ways never went away, but that was the important part, is that they never went away. I was able to say, no, this isn't for me, to other things that I discerned. I thought, as so many students do in entering university life, that, well, perhaps I was called to be a medical doctor, for instance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Watched a day of surgeries and was pretty convinced that that was was not... (laughs) No, not, thank you. <laughs> uh, not it for me, as it turns out. Um, and thinking then, well, public service perhaps is it, and spent a fascinating summer working in the U.S. Senate and really enjoyed my time there, but also was quite certain at the end of that summer that public service, while a noble calling of its own, um, was was not for me. Um, I had had professors encouraging me to go to graduate school, and so academia seemed like a real possibility. I had strayed very far from the farm in that way. But at the end of the day, um, priesthood was the one. So I was able to close a lot of doors. But a vocation to the priesthood and religious life was one I was never able to rule out. And so by the time I got to be a senior undergraduate, I thought, this has been with me for long enough. I at least need to take it seriously. And, and to open that discernment. And I decided to give God a year. I would treat it like a sort of a post, uh, postgraduate service opportunity. <laughs> a little, a little you shouldn't, shouldn't make wagers with God, Dan. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible idea. Um, we'll but, take that year and, and have the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, so, so that year uh, started right after undergraduate with the Congregation of Holy Cross. And well, here I am. I've been a, been a priest for 11 years. So yeah, uh, and, and very happily so. Good. Um, but yeah, it was uh, a discernment that... I didn't sort of know concretely that, gosh, yes, I was called to be a priest. It was one that I had to say, okay, this has been with me in a way that I couldn't rule it out in the same way that I had been able to say no to other things. Sure. And, and just that openness seems like a really important disposition for people. And you do encounter you, you know, probably some classmates in the seminary or something who also gave priesthood and religious life a look and found that God wasn't calling them to that. And that's all, that's all, those are all grace-filled moments. 
but that openness is seems like a really important disposition. Yeah, I, and this is often the way we speak about it in the seminary, or as I help students at the University of Notre Dame discern any number of things, is that sort of success isn't um, reaching point A or point B, but having become more attuned to God's will in one's life. Mm-hmm. And you know that's that's the ultimate goal. And it's, it's easy to say that now, hard to trust it when you're 18 to 22. Yeah. But that really is the, is the deep and, and abiding goal of the whole process. Now, you grew up in what sounds like a very strong family. You mentioned your siblings have spouses and kids now. What about the sacrifice of giving up fam- marriage and family life? Was that a challenge for you? How did you reconcile that? It certainly is is a challenge, and there's always a worry, especially in discernments um, before going into the seminary. Well, gosh, am I going to be? And I had family ask me this: like, are you going to be lonely? Yeah. And I think this was important for me in joining the Catholic religious life. Right. Is that though I don't have a spouse or family of my own, I do have a religious order, the Congregation of Holy Cross, that understands itself to be in imitation of not only a family, but the Holy Family, mm-hmm. and into which my family is is drawn in. So, you know, I, before uh, our podcast, I prayed with my community, um, you know, in, in our chapel in Corby Hall before right. coming over here, as we do twice a day. And so I've, my life is filled um, with common prayer and common meals and time together doing anything from going for a jog around this campus um, to in the summertime taking a few days to go fishing together at Land O'Lakes, right. uh, which we Holy Cross <laughs> legendary are fond of doing. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a place where bad fishermen can feel good about themselves. It's so easy. Um, so in that way, um, and these are not equivalents, of course, of um, a nuclear family of sure. wife and children, but the sort of proximity of, of my religious family of Holy Cross is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are two other points to make, I guess I would say. And the first is that I also live with the people uh, to whom I minister. Right. And so... I am a priest in residence in an undergraduate dormitory here on this campus in Dunhall, which is one of the great privileges of my life. But it means that loneliness is not something from which I suffer, <laughs> um, put it that way. And it's a great joy to be a pastoral resident there uh, and to accompany our students as, as they grow. But also, and I think ministerially, um, I have the great sort of blessing uh, in this vocation of being able to accompany families in their own journeys. Uh, And so real friendships um, with couples who are married in my life continue to be blessings for my own vocation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's kind of a a reciprocal sort of upbuilding in the body of Christ, like St. Paul talks about. And though I don't have my own wife and children, there's nonetheless a complementarity in the body of Christ that is sort of mutually supportive of vocations. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly found that to be the case. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I assume that you were served by diocesan priests in your home parish. How did you encounter Holy Cross and even come to know that, oh, there's an option here within priesthood of diocesan priesthood and religious life? How did you come to know that? And you said this a little bit, but if you could expound a bit more, what was attractive to you eventually about the Congregation of Holy Cross? 
I really encountered two groups before Holy Cross, and I'll, I'll give you both of those. So my home parish is served by the Diocese of Great Falls Billings, and I grew up with very fine and kind priests. Yeah. But our parish was five little towns really spread out quite a long distance, mm-hmm. covering a, a square mile, or at least responsible for a square mileage of habitation that's something like the size of the state of Rhode Island. So um, <laughs> so my priest growing up in some ways had to be a sacramental circuit writer. Sure. And so we, I, there was a time in my childhood where Hobson, my little town, had mass every other Saturday morning. Uh, we had Sunday Mass because there weren't enough times on Sunday for each of these little towns to have their own Sunday Mass. But I was, you know, always you know served by good priests, but in that way, very little interaction outside of just the Sunday liturgy. Okay. And the people of the parish were responsible for, for doing it, right? So they had to provide music if there was going to be any of it, clean the church if it was going to be cleaned, okay. um, re-roof it when it needed to be re-roofed. Yeah. So in that way, in addition to good relationships with occasional priests coming through, I did have you know sort of an immediate relationship to being of service to the local worshiping community. When I got to college, it was the first time in so Seattle U as a Jesuit school, I encountered priests in the classroom. Yeah. And my first semester wonderfully had Father David Lee for ancient Greek and Roman literature okay. in this great books program. And it, it was a tremendous experience of priests who could be teachers, and that opened a new horizon for me. I did very much uh, appreciate the mentorship and Ignatian spirituality of the Jesuits. Um, at the end of the day, uh, when I was discerned priesthood, something didn't quite feel right uh, about the Society of Jesus for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually, sort of now reflecting upon it later, had a lot to do with the way in which uh, Holy Cross structures its communal life around family. Holy Cross, founded by Father Moreau in the 19th century, is not without Ignatian spirituality. Sure. Uh, in fact, I'm preparing a translation of Basil Moreau's spiritual exercises, which are an adaptation of Ignatius mm. for the Congregation of Holy Cross and haven't yet been published in English. But I do think that there's a difference in how we um, eat and pray together and how the Jesuits are a very large religious order in that way, much more independence and Holy Cross is smaller and slightly more communal and family-like, though we do education around the world. But nonetheless, encountered the Jesuits uh, and had a very positive experience of them in, uh, as an undergraduate, and happened to meet Holy Cross. Actually, I sort of attribute it entirely to divine providence and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. In my senior year of undergraduate, I was doing a graduate school tour to look at different places. At that point, I thought I was going to do a doctorate in philosophy. Um, for those listening out there, I ended up in theology, uh, which is what I continue to teach at Notre Dame. But one of the places I stopped on that tour was Notre Dame. Okay. And while I was here, after meeting with some faculty, I realized I hadn't been in the church on campus yet. Um, I didn't know about all of the little chapels all over the place right. uh, <laughs> in dorms and things. It was my first time here. I hadn't come to visit um, as a senior in high school, and you know I should have, but went into the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. There was a daily Mass there at the same time I decided to stay. It was a wonderful experience of the Mass, and the homily was about Holy Cross. And it was good enough that I thought to myself, who are these guys? Hmm. And I picked up a brochure on the way out of the church right there in the vestibule, and it got me reading on the congregational website, et cetera, et cetera. Ended up having the courage, once I decided uh, that same fall, to open up the question of vocation 
to explore it just a little bit more and sent the vocations office an email. Okay. And so you know, the, the story goes quickly from there. But yeah, it was a real providential meeting. I did sort of wait for two years until I took first vows to write that priest uh, thank you note for the for the sermon. But I'll be forever grateful to Father Kevin Rousseau, uh, one of my confreres, for, for a really good daily mass homily that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the connection with Holy Cross uh, came very unexpectedly. Yeah. And, but took a chance on, uh, on a religious order across, uh, you know, in, in the Midwest. And I wondered about that, but when I came to interview uh, out to Moreau Seminary here on the University of Notre Dame's campus, I remember thinking, gosh, you know, if these guys are, are not right for me, I'll just go on with my life. But then I was picked up uh, at the airport by then seminarian Pete McCormick. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> Former guest of the podcast. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> as you might imagine, I had an extraordinary visit and, and left thinking, these are guys with whom, if I were just married with a family, I'd want to live on the same street. Yeah. And that was a really important spiritual affirmation in the concrete of what had been in my heart. Mm-hmm. I've been blessed by friendships with those in Holy Cross, and and you really get that sense of family, and even in my own family, you know, having my my kids be baptized and meet Holy Cross priests, they feel right at home in in a family context. So, I certainly have that sense of that that kind of charism within within the order. Your time at Notre Dame, you this this was all new, rather abrupt, but you came here for graduate school and seminary at the same time. What were some of your favorite memories as a student at Notre Dame? Uh, the first one, which I sympathize with college freshmen, which makes it fun to teach them now, is that no buildings around here seem to be pronounced by their actual name. Uh, they all have to be learned, right? Like O'Shaughnessy Hall, right next to me, where Arts and Letters is, is housed, is O'Shag, right? Or La Fortune is La Fun. And, and so everything has got sort of a shortened name by which students refer to it in conversation. It was a whole new study in language of just learning sort of the particular discourse of, of this place. Uh, and one of my, uh, my ordination classmate, uh, Father Jerry Ollinger, and I started in seminary together. And he took me on immediately as a project in order to teach these things and <laughs> introduce me to the culture that I, that I needed to know. And some of that was, was easy and fun to get into. I mean, I've looked forward to football games uh, and have enjoyed them ever since. But I thoroughly enjoyed, I have to say, the study of theology here. Um, and that's one of the most exciting and enlivening parts is this theology department uh, is filled with sort of world-renowned thinkers who are deeply shaped by their own faith and communicate that integrity of faith-seeking understanding in their classes. Mm-hmm. And so I was really sort of set on fire in a lot of ways by what I encountered by mentors here in the classroom. And it, you know, it, it wasn't the sort of experience I think some people think they go in, go into a theology class and there's I don't know, whatever their impressions of it from earlier in their life, that there may not be great content or it may not be re- that relevant or it might not even be that hard. But all of those were actualized at once for me. Great intellectual challenge, great spiritual benefit, and also the building up of community. Um, in Notre Dame's theology program, um, laymen and women training for ministry in the church, like yourself, Dan, mm-hmm. yep. um, are students at the same time as people who are going on for PhDs, at the same time as Holy Cross priests and brothers 
who are going to do ministry in the Congregation of Holy Cross. And so there's a community of scholarship here in Malloy Hall, um, where the theology department is, that's really quite a profound thing. So I did my Master of Divinity here at the university and lived at Moreau Seminary for those years. Of course, in Holy Cross, we do take a year uh, away of novitiate year, um, which is a year, it's probably come up at some point in one of these podcasts. It is, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but a year on the mountainside in Colorado, which is a year away from full-time work and study, really just to pray and develop a spiritual life in which one listens for the will of God. Mm-hmm. So other than that year, I was here uh, on this campus I'm really benefiting from theological study, but also having the opportunity to do ministry in local local apostolates. So I worked in the the Women's Care Center, which is uh, right here local to the Michiana area, mm-hmm. um, confirmation prep in a local parish, uh, and then here in campus ministry at the university as well. So my ministry placements during that time also allowed me to start to explore the South Bend and Michiana area a little bit too, which in its own way has uh, a really vibrant Catholic culture and faith life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, while you were here, you were both exploring this this interest in theology and getting the Notre Dame student experience, at least from a graduate perspective. But as you mentioned, you're also continuing to, to discern religious life and priesthood. You talked about having some good introductions to Holy Cross, but obviously that has to be confirmed over the course of many years of formation. What were some of the important moments of formation where you felt an ever-increasing confirmation of your calling by God to the priesthood and religious life? It's a great question, Dan. And I think that with any uh, vocation, there's a way in which we sink deeper into the mystery of closeness to God. And as the prophets and figures from the Bible have, have told us, you know, closeness to God isn't necessarily indicated by a, a good feeling, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the prophet Jonah is my favorite example of this, <laughs> right? And you're like, closeness to God was meant to, for, for Jonah to be, at least in his own mind, to sort of affirm where he was, not require anything of him and just make him feel good. And then, you know, when he had to sort of take a journey to Nineveh and go and preach and then see them be forgiven, he was, as it turns out, growing closer to God, but it was not what he expected. Right. And I think we all have to be to be open to that in some ways. Um, we're called and then recalled, I guess, is like the apostles were in the gospel um, after their many failures. And so along the way in in seminary, I remember arriving and the divine office book that we pray with multiple times a day that Father Rocca was teaching us how to use had like four ribbons of some very complex uh, memorial the first day of seminary. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to make it. Um, <laughs> Flipping like, back I'm, and forth and everybody I'm, seems I'm to... A total come... charlatan and everybody else seems to know what they're doing already. Um, so there were just objectively things to learn. But two, then really ways of of opening myself to God along the way. And I think a couple of things really helped in that. First, in the Congregation of Holy Cross, while we're in formation after the novitiate, we profess our vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, the mm-hmm. three vows of religious life, annually, and then renew them every year up until the point we take final vows and, or our, and then are ordained deacons. And what's good about that process is that we write a petition, and that sounds really formal. It's more like a letter to the order every year. 
giving our reasons for why we believe that God is calling us to profess again for a year and then for life the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And that became, for me, an annual reflection point of why am I doing this? And also, what are the best reasons that I have for doing it? Mm. And every once in a while on the anniversary of my final vows, I will pull that letter out of the file. Yeah. Um, petition, it really is a letter. And reread it. Like, what were the reasons I had, uh, which are still beautiful and compelling ones to me, in the fall of 2009? And what are the reasons that I still have to this day? Mm-hmm. So that, was, that exercise in particular was one very special one. But secondly, great spiritual directors along the way. Um, And so entering into a regular habit of spiritual direction or walking with someone who could accompany me as I'm a spiritual director now for our students here, I describe it as a chance to sort of lay all the cards out on the table and look at them with someone else who has only the purpose of helping you grow closer to God in your life. And that became one of the great tools for not just helping me to see that priesthood was my vocation in religious life, but helping that emerge out of increasing proximity to Jesus Christ. Mm. And so those, I think, were two, two of the great tools. I think that the other good parts of Holy Cross formation for me had to do with habit formation, yeah. right? That our community prays together and eats together every day is a real part of affirming that uh, a vocation is a daily event. Yes, it is something that we say yes to in these liminal moments, right, of ordinations or final profession or marriage vows for married folks. But the commitment to live a vocation well is something that sort of begins shortly after I've woken in the morning, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and ends as I close my eyes and, and hit the pillow at night. And sort of reframing it in terms of how it is that I lived each of those days was one of the really helpful and amazing parts of Holy Cross formation. And it's a beautiful part of our formation programs in Holy Cross is that they help guys to see that and then refine the structures and attitudes with which they go through um, each day with integrity. Mm-hmm. Now, look, we have our failures, certainly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like anybody else, <laughs> but at least uh, the the structure is sort of supportive of a day of a, of a life well lived. Yeah, that you make time for prayer, you make yeah. time for community. It's probably discouraged to get yourself so busy that you can never make these moments of, of communal time. And if, if that gets to that point, time to recalibrate maybe some of those commitments. You discussed final vows, which is a really important moment, and ordination. If you could take us through those moments as well as your family's reaction to all this. We haven't touched on that, that you went far from home, you decided to enter religious life and priestly life. What was your experience of that? What was your family's experience of those times? Yeah, so from Hobson, Montana to South Bend, Indiana is 1,513 miles. (laughs) So it's a long drive. Yes. And my family, thankfully, has been only supportive of me all the way through this discernment process. They wanted to know that, you know, this was was right for me and that I had total freedom in it. But once they were satisfied of that, they were they were very supportive. Holy Cross was far away. But as I mentioned earlier on, that Holy Cross is very familial. This sort of 
spills over into the religious order's relation to our natural families. Mm-hmm. And this is not the case for every Catholic religious order, but in the Congregation of Holy Cross, our families in some ways become an extended family of the order and vice versa. Mm. And so my family, when they would come to visit, would stay right with us at Moreau Seminary. They became friends with the other parents. They're all connected to each other on Facebook, much <laughs> to the terror of all of us. Um, and so the sort of extended family of, of Holy Cross grew very quickly that way. And my parents still, when they come to visit, like to do so when some of the parents of my peers in Holy Cross are also going to be here, um, which is really special, actually. So my family was very supportive. The remarkable, and at Final Vows, I mean, what's very moving about that is saying, I profess to God forever the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which involves uh, a laying flat on the floor of the church mm-hmm. and having the litany of the saints prayed, which is sort of the union of the earthly church and the heavenly church, and also uh, a real self-emptying. This is not about sort of the exaltation of me, but an act of service and of prayer um, and of belonging to this church around me. The same thing, of course, happens at priestly ordination. And I was a deacon at St. Joseph Parish in South Bend and continued for my first year as a priest after I was ordained at Christ the King, also in South Bend. Mm -hmm. And so I had two years of ministry, one as a deacon and one as a priest before graduate school in right here in South Bend. The ordination experience itself was was particularly beautiful for a couple of reasons. One, so I mentioned 1,513 miles from Hobson, Montana. Most folks from Hobson had never been to Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And so my hometown parish got together and they chartered a bus. Wow. Uh, and so they made it into something of a pilgrimage. I mean, this is a solid, minimally two days drive to get out here. Um <laughs> And tragically, the bus broke down on the way home somewhere in South Dakota, which made it longer than two days going back. They did make it. And it was really beautiful to have um, some of my confreres, in addition to the ordination liturgy itself and my first mass, host these folks from my hometown and show them the campus and take them through it and really make it into something of a pilgrimage for them. And a crew of of people from St. Joseph Parish. I'll never forget uh, Marge Marley, a citizen here in South Bend, who said to me at one point, called my office and said, Deacon Kevin, how are they going to eat? And I was like, Marge, I haven't gotten that far yet. And um, established that she and other folks from the parish were going to feed the bus breakfast. Uh, and they did at the parish center at St. Joe every day. So the, the sort of union of goodwill surrounding that ordination weekend was a really special time. And it's also a moment when the whole Holy Cross family comes back together. Yeah. And so, you know, hundreds of, of Holy Cross priests and brothers come back to Sacred Heart Basilica here on campus, which is the church where we have our final vows and ordinations. We also celebrate people's funeral masses there mm-hmm. um, and jubilees. It's a special place to us in addition to a special place for the university. And people come back on ordination weekends um, and on those occasions, Um, In the ordination liturgy, there's a laying on of hands, which is not only the bishop, but all of the other priests who are concelebrating the Mass. And it probably takes about 15 minutes for 150 uh, Holy Cross priests to go lay their hands on all of the ordinandi. But what's really beautiful about that is it includes like all of the prayers of the ministerial experience of people who have been in all the corners of the world, doing everything from running a primary school to starting a mission to operating um, university administrations and everything in between. And it's a really profound and humbling and 
inspiring in quite the literal sense of the theological word moment in that in that ritual and something that still sticks out to this day from my ordination weekend yeah it's it's an emotional moment i think even for those of us watching to just think about the ministry of all those priests and what they're doing and that they're trying to impart their prayers and blessing on these newly ordained priests every every especially holy cross ordination that i've been to has been i've, I've felt my faith grow in those moments now you talked about being from a very small parish in Montana and yet had a couple of years in two different larger parishes in in the South Bend area what were those years like uh, ministering to a larger parish with probably a wider variety of of offerings and and spiritual demands from a larger population and it was completely and totally energizing. I experienced just the, the vibrancy of a big parish, and particularly parishes, Holy Cross's charism is education in the faith. Um, and so particularly parishes with primary schools, it was mm-hmm. neat to encounter that. And you know, one of the hallmarks of both of my parish experiences was being outside. It was either before or after daily mass, depending on the schedule, at either St. Joe or Christ the King but being outside to greet the students as they walked in every morning. And keep in mind that both of these parish school enrollments were like double the size of my hometown, right? (laughs) So it's in that way, learning their names and learning their families and starting to, to memorize people and get to know all of their stories was a great privilege. And the neat part about the parish is there would always be something different happening in the course of a day. Um, you know, I might start with daily mass and greeting the children at school, but in the middle of the day, go over to one of the two local hospitals to do anointing of the sick for parishioners who are in the hospital that day, plan an evening event with parishioners, do marriage preparation or a funeral consultation, and just abide with people during all of the points of their lives. Mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that was the great grace of parish life is that you get to walk with people from the moment they enter the world and their baptism and their entry into the church to accompanying their body uh, to its final resting place in the earth um, as we pray for the repose of their soul in heaven. And so to be able to accompany people in the spiritual life across that whole spectrum is is the real privilege of parish life. And it means there is always something interesting going on. <laughs> yes, yes. That is, uh, I worked in a parish for a few years myself and marveled, especially at our priests, at the variety of tasks that they were called to throughout the day and sometimes had to quickly flip the switch from <laughs> this kind of situation to, to something else, even at a moment's notice. Now, you were called, though, towards uh, academia and eventually ended up at Cambridge. Could you tell us how that came about and what those years were like? Yeah, and so those of us who do doctorates in Holy Cross, priests or brothers, for higher education, it's sort of like a call within a call. Sure. Right? So the primary one would be to the religious life and for me, the priesthood. But the secondary one was to higher studies. And I mean, as you well know, we do higher education work as kind of our bread and butter in mm-hmm. some ways in this country. Notre Dame, the University of Portland, King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and Stonehill, just south of Boston, are our four primary universities. 
And to be at any of those as a faculty member, we need PhDs just like anyone else. Sure. And so the order encourages those young men who would like to do doctoral work to apply and get into the best institutions they can, go complete those degrees, and then take up the life of teaching and research at the university, which they're most disposed to, to participate at. And for me, with some advising from faculty here at Notre Dame, um, I selected the University of Cambridge as my top choice and was blessed to get in there. Worked with a wonderful advisor there and had an, had an excellent experience. I was, while I was a graduate student, I was the um, assistant chaplain for the Roman Catholics in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, Notre Dame has a, has a chapel in each dorm uh, in most academic buildings. Cambridge has one, it's like a Newman Center, a right. Catholic chaplaincy for the whole university. And it gave me a chance to get to know all of the little colleges there and to get to know sort of student concerns in a completely different environment, which I, I loved very much um, and was a terrific experience, but also a chance to really dig into the academic side of my vocation and to do studies that would prepare me to teach and to write on theological topics along the way. There was one really terrific moment, though, Dan, which sort of brings all of Holy Cross together with graduate school in England. And you wouldn't necessarily think this about going to an 800-year-old university. Um, (laughs) But my college at Cambridge was called Trinity College. And so the university is divided up into little colleges. And it's a grand old one in the middle. It's actually where St. John Fisher went to an earlier version of it on that site. And then his sort of mentee, uh, intellectually, Henry VIII, uh, <laughs> who ultimately took his life, um, then refounded the college. But is, so his you know, picture is there over the dining hall, which is this grand old medieval building. And on both sides, on uh, going, and it looks like if you imagine a Harry Potter movie, like you've got exactly the picture. Okay. So the professors sit in their academic robes up at the front, um, <laughs> and students line long tables that are made of wood with benches going down the sides. And on one side of the dining hall, are like good students from over the years. And uh, I say that, you know, a bit tongue in cheek because one is Isaac Newton, okay. right? You know, one is Francis Bacon, you know, Lord Byron, like the list just goes down wow. and down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the other side are former masters of the college. And so those, the Dumbledore sort of figure. Sure. And the beautiful part for me is that one, he was then retired, but he lived in my building, actually. One of the former masters is the Nobel laureate economist, both of Cambridge and of Harvard, named Amartya Sen. Hmm. And the beautiful part is that Amartya Sen got his start at a Holy Cross Brothers school um, in Bangladesh. And so the way in which the educational mission of the order was even there um, in my graduate studies was really important. And for those listening, immediately, well, not too long, so Father Soren came here in the early 1840s, and Father Moreau asked him in the 1850s, he said no, as it turned out, but Holy Cross <laughs> uh, went to Bangladesh. Father Moreau asked Father Soren to go, and he did have important work to do here at Notre Dame, certainly. But Holy Cross has stayed in Bangladesh since that time, and it's a place that no other religious order at that time in the church was willing to go and stay. And so that I, who now work at Notre Dame, would have the inspiration of someone who benefited so much from Holy Cross's work, really among the poorest at that point in Bangladesh, um, have a reminder of that visually in this place of great power and prestige in Cambridge was a really important inspiration for me throughout my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. But I was in Cambridge for three and a half years, 
and doing a degree in philosophical theology. I wrote a dissertation on St. Augustine, and then I did a six-month postdoc at L'Institut Catholique, which is the Catholic University of Paris, okay. before coming back to the University of Notre Dame. Mm. So you've had quite the breadth of seeing the Universal Church from Montana to Indiana, but then England and France. Having traveled to Europe and read some about that, obviously, you know, we're all going through this kind of struggle with a more secular culture and how do we continue to make faith relevant. What was that like for you to be a priest in England and France and to still find ways to minister and and ways to relate to people, maybe who were engaged in their faith or maybe who were not? I, there are two two prongs to that, and I think the first was strengthening one's brothers and sisters who were already engaged in their faith, mm-hmm. um, realizing that there's yet much more to explore, and encouraging them to take pride in it. It was always really beautiful when students at the chaplaincy at Cambridge would want to bring their peers to Mass. They took a great deal of pride in the chaplaincy that was theirs to build. Um, and they would bring people from their colleges who were not religious or had never encountered Catholicism to to come to Mass. Mm-hmm. And we had a very, very vibrant community. Likewise, in that place, I was part of a funding group called Gates, um, mm-hmm. which brought together a number of scholars from around the world. And for the most part, I mean, there were various religious dispositions in the organization, which itself wasn't religious, but largely secular. And it was interesting as... Uh, sort of obviously religious person, right? right? (laughs) Can't get around it. (laughs) Um, To to be a voice in that group. And I found that they were fascinated by what it meant for me to be avowed religious in the world in particular. So what the witness of poverty, chastity, and obedience were. And I got a lot of questions about that, even sort of formally presented on it on one occasion or two occasions. And then would just invite people to mass at the chaplaincy when I was preaching. And very frequently they would come. And that was interesting and was a source of dialogue and was able to be part of a number of ways of allowing people a space to explore Christianity and Catholicism, um, both in collaboration with Protestant brothers and sisters and in talking um, about issues that mattered with people with no religious background whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I have to say that those conversations are very possible and very fruitful. And so I left much more optimistic and hopeful about sort of the, the future of, of religion in the Western world than is oftentimes the grim data of, as, as we have studies on dis- disaffiliation or the complexities of secularization, mm-hmm. etc. Likewise, in my postdoc in France, the parish right around the corner where I would, in working on my French concelebrate Sunday Mass, was... <laughs> hugely vibrant yeah. um, and in really striking ways. Um, and that's not to say that France doesn't have, you know, it obviously does, a diminished practicing Roman Catholic population. But the narrative that, oh, it's all just coming to a screeching halt is also not the right one. Mm-hmm. And there are conversations to be had about, all right, what does it mean to minister to or to reaffiliate people who might be disaffiliating for mm-hmm. various reasons now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is the deep desire of the human heart, the longing for God, and sometimes it's being creative in, in how we tap into that. And to be totally frank, Faith ND, this podcast, I mean, these are some efforts that, well, what is the, you know, the street preaching or the evangelization tool of our day? 
it's you know it's the use of technology it's it's trying to reach people where they are and and see that the gospel still resonates this isn't just a club that we belong to that we think is really great but no this is you know taste and see the goodness of god we've tasted this ourselves and and we want to share it so thank you for your ministry in that and i'm i'm glad to hear signs of hope in that now you came back to Notre Dame to teach how did that come about and what have some of those years been like so far so my first year here I did a postdoctoral year um, at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study so one year just of research during which I applied to teach on the theology department's faculty not a given no (laughs) not a given Uh, and importantly so right And so there are good reasons to hire Holy Cross priests. You know, it sort of counts as a free hire. So that's a, a good thing <laughs> for an academic department at Notre Dame and, and a good incentive. But at the same time, you know, the uh, Holy Cross priest has to apply just like anyone else and be hired by that particular academic department. Yeah. And so I applied and was hired by the theology department, and I've been on the tenure track. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still on the tenure track. Yes. So we'll say a prayer for that. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, the downhill slide of it now, only a couple years left. And during that time, sort of, I focus on research, teaching, and service. And in terms of my teaching, I teach everyone from introductory students, so foundations of theology for Mm -hmm. college freshmen, Mm -hmm. which I particularly love. It's a great grace to walk with them through those courses. And actually, it's sort of coming from our our conversation just about secularization and disaffiliation. It's one of the beautiful places to encounter students who may have real questions about what role the Catholic faith or religion in general might have in their lives. And to show them that these questions are deep and abiding ones, they're real intellectual and spiritual questions that we can ask in a serious and profound way Mm -hmm. in a course that's introduction to Catholic theology, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the first 300 years of the church in 14 weeks. It's it's a move, Dan. (laughs) Um, But I teach freshmen. I also teach in the master's level. Both are Holy Cross Seminary and priests and brothers, our lay students preparing for ministry in the church, and others who are preparing either to teach um, or to go on to do future research, and I teach doctoral students as well. So I teach across the spectrum here, and then also um, do my own research and writing. I mentioned Father Moreau's spiritual exercises. In the fall, I've got a book coming out on St. Augustine, and try to write articles and book chapters along the way. So teaching and research form the big parts of my life. Uh, And then the final part of a tenure track life here, of course, is service. Some of that's pastoral, chaplaining various things on this campus and living in a dormitory. Some of that's academic service, um, which are helping out the discipline of theology and in particular the department here. Mm -hmm. But those are the the facets of my my life at the University of Notre Mm -hmm. Dame. And you recently won a teaching award, the Thomas P. Madden Award. And from what I understand, that was related to this Foundations of Theology course. Can you tell us some about the award and and what was gratifying about being recognized in that way? (laughs) Well, thanks. Uh, I I was really very much moved by this. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. And the Thomas Madden Award was started, or first given at least, to Emil T. Hoffman, Mm -hmm. the sort of renowned chemistry professor here at the University of Notre Dame. Yes. And each year is given... By, so nominations emerge from first-year students and first-year advising faculty, um, and then some, uh, and then former award winners uh, apparently help help choose the uh, awardee. But it's for a faculty member who has made a great difference in the lives of first-year students okay. that year. Um, it's managed by the office of the provost, and I was very humbled to receive it. 
teaching first-year students is one of the great joys of my, uh, my vocation here, being able to walk with them at that important moment in their lives. And it was a real surprise uh, and a joy to receive that email just a couple weeks ago. Well, as you've come back to campus, I've heard your name a number of times and even seen you know letters to the editor and the observer. You're, you're certainly making a pastoral impact um, on campus and an intellectual one as well, really helping form and shape our students. This aspect, though, of living in an undergraduate residence hall, some people lived in an undergraduate residence hall maybe for a year, maybe for, at Notre Dame for four years, but not many people would choose to continue living in that environment. But you have, what it, what is life-giving about that to you, about living with a few hundred undergraduate students in Dunn Hall? You know, the neat part, uh, especially in Dunn Hall, is that I moved in along with the students when the dorm opened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been there for the creation of its culture. Yeah. And to see them form habits and traditions that are worthwhile and would last. And to be able, uh, the great privilege, I suppose, is to be able to walk with students as they grow in their own um, vocations and their own faith. You know, as a priest in residence, it's also a little bit easier in some ways. I'm not the rector. Uh, so as I explained to their to their parents, like, he's justice, I'm mercy. Right? Um, and so in that way, you know, I, I hear a lot of confessions in the hall. Right. Or, But also have a chance to, to speak with them about things that matter. And I think that's in addition to sort of one-on-one conversations with students. I always say at, after Mass on Tuesday nights, at which I always preside, I'll have food and conversation um, with the guys in the hall. And those are often very meaningful and guys are great about showing up. Um, and then of course for Lent, we'll take up some actual text. This last COVID year for Lent, we read one of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters mm-hmm. for each of the Tuesday nights that we had of Lent. And they were a great hit and, uh, and a big group of guys came every week. So things like that. I, um, also help put on um, the annual retreat for the dorm, which at between 100 and 120 guys every year is, I think, about the biggest retreat on campus. Yeah. And that's something that's grown from the ground up, but it gives me a chance to be present to their lives in the way that is hopefully forming, again, of sort of day-in, day-out habits of a vibrant spiritual life. Um, and it's a joy to be part of that. You know, undergraduate guys have uh, and girls have uh, sort of a late rated sleep schedule, yes. right? Uh, there, there are moments that those, those gears grind a little bit, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, to get up the next morning for a communal prayer or something, I'm sure, could be a challenge. We heard about this practice of writing petitions each year that you take vows, and even you're going back to those petitions. I'm curious to know, you had your reasons then, are they the same reasons now, or what are the additional, what are the same, or what are the additional reasons now for remaining a religious priest in this life? It's a good question. The root reasons about relationship to Christ are the same. Mm-hmm. Now, however, I abide with people differently. Sure. Right? So I serve the students whom I teach. Then I was a student, right? I walk with people as I prepare them for marriage or witness their wedding vows and have a chance to abide with people when they're sick or as they're dying. 
And so now there is uh, a real focus on the sacramental mediation of God's presence to the world. We need sacraments, right? So we need visible signs of invisible graces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to speak words of mercy, to say Christ's words of institution at the Eucharist, or as Augustine said, he knew the price of his redemption. He ate it and drank it and distributed it to others, Mm. uh, speaking of the Mass. And as a poor one, longed with them to be filled. I consider now, in a very important way, my sacramental life and ministry to be one not only for my ongoing healing and growth in the spiritual life for all the many ways that I'm weak, but also probably the most important thing that I do um, in addition to teaching in the classroom here on this campus and just as a priest in general. And so why I do what I do now is tied very closely into the sacramental economy of the church, and not just as a functionary, but as that which gives us evidence of God's goodness in physical ways that we desperately need while we're walking along the journey of our pilgrimage through this life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. We always touch on holiness on the podcast. First of all, who have been some of the models of holiness to you and inspired you along your journey of faith? I This is probably the case for many people, and I love it when students say it, but my own grandparents, and, and there are many saints who I would hold up as well, but in my own family, my own grandparents will, you know, sort of never be lifted up to the to the altars like that. Mm-hmm. But for the way in which they started lives and built families around faith, and some of them had nothing, like started building a house on the corner of a field. Yeah, sort of built a life together, and raised children who sort of knew the value of faith and continued to pray, and taught it to us that day-in, day-out witness of just an honest, humble, never prideful or self-satisfied or certain, but sincere faith is something that abides with me and continues to inspire me to this day. I keep a picture of um, the family homestead where my great-great-grandparents came to the middle of Montana and just started to build a life uh, in my office. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a great in- inspiration to me. And then there are a whole number of figures within the Congregation of Holy Cross of guys with whom I have lived uh, over the years who have done everything from be missionaries in Bangladesh to um, be humble associate pastors in local parish schools. Mm -hmm. And they image for me that daily holiness is about commitment and about openness to the Holy Spirit and about a life lived for Christ. And they inspire that out of me time and again as I think about them. And then finally, as a final question, what have been some of the most effective practices for you personally as you seek after not only your vocation, but living that vocation in a holy way? It's a great question. So I spend most of my life in the marketplace of words, Mm -hmm. right, as an academic. (laughs) For me, silence is really important. Um, So being in the presence of God, uh, sitting there in a pew in silence. Secondly, I also like prayers that I do when I move around. So like moving and praying with a rosary in my pocket is, Mm -hmm. since I was an undergraduate, has been something that I really value. And then thirdly, a habit of 
we all sin and need to be forgiven them. Um, and so proximity to the closeness or proximity to the sacrament of reconciliation in the Eucharist is has been particularly important. Um, and lastly, community helps keep those of us who are weak accountable. And those <laughs> communities can be our families, they can be our religious orders. And that way of helping to build each other up in habits of prayer and holiness, for me, makes all the difference in the world because it's something uh, at which alone, I'm sure I would fail. Okay. That's really helpful. And I think will resonate with a lot of people. You know, this agricultural image of roots and, and, and the rootedness with which you uh, live your faith and, and live your priesthood and your religious life, I think has, has really come through, uh, at least in, in my listening to this conversation. And I hope that people sense that rootedness as well. And, and, and not, not only that, but your cultivation of that rootedness in our students, I think, is really inspiring. So, Father Kevin, just thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today and know of our prayers for your future ministry and work here at Notre Dame and wherever else God calls you. Thanks very much, Dan. It's great to be with you. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. For future episodes of the podcast, we welcome you to subscribe to a service of your choosing, as well as to subscribe to our Faith ND Daily Gospel Reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. We thank you for joining us for this entire season. We encourage you to go back and listen to any previous episodes you missed and share those with others who you think might be inspired by the stories there. Until next time and next season, you will be in our prayers. God bless you all. Mm-hmm.